We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. Koheleth writes, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God, and draw near to listen, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. And they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven, and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort, and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for He takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin. And do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. And so we come before you, Father, in fear. Because your word tells us again and again to fear you. But Lord, we're a little confused as to how we are supposed to fear you and how we are to approach you in fellowship. It seems, Lord, on the one hand, we're told to approach you in in fear and and trembling worship and awe in your presence. And in the other hand, Jesus, you call us a friend. So we want to understand how it is that we are to approach the living God. And I pray your words will give us understanding about this very thing today. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to teach us through your word now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Thursday morning, Naomi and I were driving to school. And uh, a lot of times while we're driving, because Naomi is just a talker. I mean, she wakes up talking and she falls asleep. I literally, I'm closing her door at night saying, Good night, Naomi. <laughs> <laughs> and so a lot of times I'm still waking up so we'll, we'll play a game we'll play I Spy give her some focus you know and I'll say I Spy something yellow and she'll look out the window and the line's on the road yes good job I Spy something wet Campbell Lake yes good job and, and we go around doing this thing well I looked in the rearview mirror Thursday morning and I saw that bright eyed precocious little face and, uh, and I said I Spy something beautiful and Naomi immediately, without missing a beat, said, Me! <laughs> I said, Yep! <laughs> she got it! Oh, just precious. How do you look this morning? How do you look sitting here in the fellowship this morning? Did you dress to impress? I know we're in a barn, but come on. Do your socks match? I mean, let's start there. Is your hair well coiffed? How much time did you spend on it? Did you sing well today? And present yourself well. Did you have the requisite facial expression at the appropriate time of worship? Scale of 1 to 10. How would you rate how you are looking today? Do these questions offend your religious sensibilities? I hope so. I hope we're offended by the very, very insinuation that 
perhaps maybe our hearts aren't exactly in the right place, and I'm not judging anyone here, but I hope a little holy anger wells up inside you when you hear questions like this. I hope you're thinking, what are you talking about, Rick? I'm not here for the outward show of religious expression. I came to love Jesus and my brothers and sisters in Christ. I hope that's what comes up in your heart when those questions are asked. You know, a church in a barn does have the effect of stripping away at least some of those religious affectations that perhaps we get drawn into. But we get to a heart level right now with Kohalath. He does something unexpected here nearly halfway through his sermon. And that's what it is. The book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes in the Greek, Kohalath in the Hebrew, the book of Ecclesiastes is a sermon, a 12-chapter sermon where Kohalath, the preacher, puts on the mask of humanism and from a humanistic perspective gropes his way toward God. He's speaking the language truly of our culture today. And in the middle of this sermon to the secularist, this homily to the humanist, Kohalath turns around and reckons with the religious. And perhaps it's unexpected. He is speaking to the assembly. That's what a preacher does, speaks to the assembly. And at some point, he just gets eye to eye with somebody in the assembly who's putting on a religious face and he just nails it. For a moment here, seven verses, he sets aside the worldly futility for spiritual vanity. And he deals with it head on. Gets right up in the face of the person who thinks they're good to go and holy and and righteous altogether. Spiritually beautiful. The one who would say, Me, Lord! (laughs) I spy something beautiful. Yeah, it's me. I'm looking good this week. And all this talk of the vanity of humanity, well, the pious and the pompous among us might be tempted to think, Oh, we are so much better than the world. We define secular humanism on Wednesday night, which is, gang, a religion. Webster's Dictionary actually defines secular humanism as a religion unto itself. A religion that rejects the supernatural and rejects the typical religious uh, mindset for a humanistic one, the elevation of man. But even as we talked about that, I thought... If I was a secular humanist sitting here listening to this, would I be convicted by the words of Kohalath, or would I feel like I was just surrounded by a bunch of hypocrites? And so Kohalath, it's marvelous, stops. And he says, all right, let's give the secular humanist a break, and let's deal with the rest of us who perhaps have a more religious perspective. Kidner, in his commentary, says, like the prophets, Kohalath presses for reality in this realm. But his tone is quiet, though his words are razor sharp. Whereas the prophets of old hurl their invective against the vicious and the hypocrites, this writer's target is now the well-meaning person who, like a good sing, and turns up cheerfully enough to church, but who listens with half an ear, and never quite gets round to what he has volunteered to do for God. We're talking about the person who thinks they've got the God system down pat. I spy something beautiful. Me. Verse 1. He begins by saying, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. And here's the clue. It is the person who is going up to church. It's the person who is going to temple. The house of God. Back in chapter 2, Solomon spoke, interestingly, of all the building and construction projects he had done. 
He built houses and vineyards and gardens and parks for himself. All for himself. And he discovered that it was all vanity. But there was one thing Solomon built that was not vain. One thing that he oversaw, a massive, marvelous project that he was involved in. Solomon was the tip of the spear on this one. And it was the building of the temple. That very building that would invite and truly house the Shekinah glory of God. You know, when the temple was done, God's glory filled it such that the priests had to get out. They couldn't bear even to be in there. And Solomon was involved in that. This was not a vain thing, not a futile work. And so the house of God to Solomon and truly to the Jewish people was a monument before them of the presence of God Himself. And Solomon says, if you're going up to the house of God, guard your steps. This is, by, way, by the way, the singular reference to the temple in the entire book of Ecclesiastes right here in verse 1. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. When excavators began to unearth the land all around the Temple Mount, began to search and dig, and archaeologists looked into these things, they unearthed the entire south side of the temple and discovered the temple steps were still there. You can see them today. You can walk up those steps. We sit on those steps and have Bible study when we are in Jerusalem. It's marvelous. But you might know as you walk up those steps that they are uneven. You Bible students, you've heard me talk about this before. The southern steps have alternating degrees of height. Why is that? It's so that you couldn't just thoughtlessly lope your way up into the temple. You had to pay attention. If you weren't guarding your steps, you'd trip and fall flat on your face. Solomon did that purposefully. And now where he says, guard your steps, this is what he's talking about. The Hebrew word guard is shamar. means observe. Pay attention. Keep your steps. There is a right way and there is a wrong way to approach the living God. If you're jotting down notes, you might. There are five things I'll tell you about the approach to God that we draw out of these verses. Number one, watch your step. Watch your step. And that doesn't mean, you know, as Clark was saying during communion, that we just, I'm not going to take communion because I'm too much of a sinner. Hey, the fact that you recognize that is watching your step. The fact that you acknowledge who you are before God is watching your step. It's coming before Him with a right consideration. It's not blasting out of the car and into the seat on a Sunday morning and waiting for the service to be over so you can hit the the local restaurant. Watching your step is pausing and thinking, what am I doing here? It's when your eyes open on Sunday morning saying, what am I about to be involved with? But more than a Sunday morning, it's a daily thought. What is this walk with Jesus truly about? How is this changing my life? How is this making me different? Approach Him thoughtfully. Watch your step. Far too few people, myself many times included, have failed to pause and recognize what it means to come into the presence of a holy God. And He is a holy God. I think, by the way, this is why our nation is in a world of hurt. Because we have, in the past couple of generations especially, forgotten what it means to come into the presence of a holy God. Forgotten what it means to even have respect for God, for Jesus, for His Word. For the last 2,000 years of the church, for the last over 200 years of of faith in this country, we've lost respect for these things. We've become uh, careless. We've become casual. Casual is okay, right? If 
on the on the outside being relaxed, comfortable. I want you to be casual. We're in the barn again for crying out loud. But casual of spirit, well, that's a different thing. And we become even calloused to the Lord. I think about that old story we've looked at a few times. Consecration day for Aaron the high priest. Leviticus chapter 10 tells the story. And Aaron is washed and cleansed and prepared and anointed. And it is a big deal. Aaron now, the first high priest of Israel, and Moses is there, and he's functioning on behalf of the Lord to prepare Aaron and his sons. Aaron has four sons, and they're all getting prepared for this priesthood, and it is a marvelous and probably somewhat heady day. And two of his sons, Nadab and Abihu, most likely got buzzed, and certainly got burned. How do you know they got buzzed? Well, if you read further down in the story of Leviticus 10, verses 9-11, through 11, God gives a warning against drinking when you approach the temple, which is likely what Nadab and Abihu were doing early on on that day. This is a great day, cheers! The guys being anointed for high priest. Leviticus 10, verse 1 says, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Boy, you want to stop a celebration quickly? Reno, Nevada. All it took was a single plane to fly out of the sky and crash into the stands. Perhaps you've seen the video. It's frightening. The pilot lost control and was killed. Nine people now have been killed in that accident just this last week. People were there. You know, they had their coolers. They had their their kids. They had their lawn chairs. They're sitting out watching the planes fly and just having a great time, celebrating flight. And boom, in an instant, it became horrifying. That's what happened that day. Nadab and Abihu (laughs) were going to be high priests and they ended up fired. (laughs) Literally. Moses immediately turns to Aaron and he says the following It is what the Lord spoke saying by those who come near me I will be treated as holy and before all the people I will be honored well that's Old Testament no that's God I will be treated as holy I will be honored you know that seems a little over the top for me pastor that they got Fried for their, you know, I, I can see them getting a little out of control. We all do sometimes, don't we? We all get a little beyond where we should be in our, in our faith. We do stupid things, foolish things. God forgives us. Why would He fry these two guys on the spot? Besides the fact, didn't we just talk last week about a personal relationship with Jesus? That's what this is about, you know. It's not about being a church, it's about each of us individually and then collectively being part of a family. And knowing the Lord and being in His presence. And if that's the fact, then why would God do something like this? Aren't we supposed to be able to hang with God? You know? Openly and authentically? Here's the thing. We need to realize that when we come to the Lord, we don't come on our terms, we come on His terms. We don't come to Him the way we think we should be able to approach Him. We approach Him the way He tells us to, the way He invites us to. By those who come near me, He says, I will be treated as holy. Psalm 89, verse 6 says, Who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord, a God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all those who are around Him? 
Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.17, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. May we never forget His greatness and in light of that, our smallness when we approach the house of God. Guard your steps. But, but what about grace? God's grace in Jesus. We'll get there. But you got to consider this, even where grace is concerned. Grace is never about justifying taking liberties with God's holiness. Just because we've been saved, just because we've been healed, just because the Lord has accepted us and washed away sin, doesn't mean that we have the right then to go, yeah, God's my man. No, He's not. The very concept of amazing grace and astounding mercy, that alone should cause me to come before Him with the most thoughtful and humble gratitude imaginable. So, we should approach God with some degree of fear? Absolutely. Absolutely. In Leviticus chapter 15, verse 31, the Lord says, You shall keep the sons of Israel separated from their uncleanness, so that they will not die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is among them. We approach the same presence of God today. When we talk about being in His presence, that's the same God we're talking about. Like the Israelite approaching the tabernacle, or later approaching the temple, the house of God, when we recognize the presence of the Holy God, watch your step. Approach thoughtfully. What steps do we take to approach God thoughtfully? To prepare our hearts in a way that we will treat Him as holy and honor Him before all the people. Before you leave the house on a Sunday morning, do you pause and catch your breath and think about what you're about to do? Before you pray or as you begin to pray, do you start out with a casual, yo, what up? Or is it (laughs) our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name? That's how Jesus taught us to pray. When you worship, are you thinking about your experience or His? Guard your steps. We are not here to enter into a religious service. We have come into the fellowship of God-fearing, Jesus-loving, Spirit-sensitive people for the purpose of glorifying God and honoring Him. Now let me just say this very clearly. The cost of admission is high. In fact, there's not a one among us who can afford the cost of admission into the presence of God. You want in? You want to be part of the ecclesia, the called out, the assembly? He demands, here's his price, complete and total purity. Absolute purity. And maybe at this point, some are thinking, wow, I probably should just quietly exit. You know what the lesson of the book of Leviticus is? It's got to take blood. You've got to have blood. The book of Leviticus is the bloodiest book in the entire Bible. It's all about the sacrifices, it's all about the blood, and it all points to Jesus. And it's in Leviticus that he says, make sure that they don't die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is among them. So here's the ironic thing. God is holy. God is awesome. He has the tabernacle constructed that His presence might be there. And you know where He puts the tabernacle? Smack dab in the middle of the camp of Israel. What? What? How about on that mountain over there, God? 
How about on a high place? That's where the pagan gods were normally put, on the high places, out away from the people, so you had to go up to... God says, no, I want to be in the midst of my people. I want to be right there. Yeah, but God, if we approach you wrong, we'll die. Uh-huh. But I want to be <laughs> right there among you, in with my people. And He did it to teach them that only blood sacrifice could atone for their sin, could cover their sin, so that they could approach Him. And now, and by the way, that whole thing was a picture. For now. Because God wants to put His tabernacle in your heart. He wants to live not in the middle of the camp of Christians. He wants to live in the middle of your heart. Jesus says, you keep My Word, My Father and I, we're going to come and make our abode with you. We're going to reside with you. My Spirit will be present in your life. And the cost of admission is high, that complete and total purity. So how do we get it? Jesus paid the price, you know that. With His life, a nail was driven through the feet of Jesus so that we could guard our steps walking up before God. Nails were driven, hammered into the hands of Jesus at Calvary so our hands could be lifted up clean in worship. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed, the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53.5. And in Mark chapter 15, verse 37, we read that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed His last, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, so that a man, a woman, might be cleansed and approach the Lord. So we guard our steps having been washed in the forgiving, gracious blood of Jesus Christ. Let's get more practical than that. How do we actually guard our steps? We do so by listening. He says, guard your steps as you go up to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know they are doing evil. Secondly, as we approach the living God, guard your steps. Number two, listen up. Listen up. The Hebrew word there for listen is Shema. Shema. Does that sound familiar? Bible students, have you heard the word Shema before? You know what the Shema is? It's one of the most well-known prayers among the Jewish people. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel. The Lord your God is one. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And Jesus repeats the same prayer as a good Jew would. Jesus prays this. Mark 12, 29. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The Jews call it the Shema. Hear. Listen. It's the first word of the phrase. And it's the word used here in our Bibles, verse 1 of chapter 5. Draw near to listen. But the word Shema is more than an invitation to listen or hear. It bears a double force of meaning. You might note that Shema means to pay attention. Shema also means obey. It means to obey. Think back to 1 Samuel, story of King Saul. God had commanded Saul as the first king of Israel to completely wipe out the Amalekites. That was the command. And whether you understand it or not, and I'm not going to go into explaining this right now, but every man, woman, child, every beast, every possible thing, wipe it out completely. There should be nothing left. This was God's command to King Saul. 
So Saul took Israel in battle against the Amalekites, and he wiped them out, but not all of them. In fact, Saul thought he knew better than God. And so when it was all said and done, he spared the life of King Agag, and he saved the choicest flocks and herds you know, for the kingdom. He saved a few things, sparing their king. Saul didn't know what God knew. God's command, Saul, wipe them out. Saul says, all right, mostly. I'll mostly obey. But he did not completely obey. And what Saul didn't know that God did know was that it would be an Amalekite who would later be the man to drive a spear through Saul and kill him. So because he spared King Agag, an offspring would later be the death of Saul. And furthermore, Saul couldn't have imagined that five and a half centuries later, the entire Jewish people would be threatened with genocide by a guy named Haman from the story of the book of Esther. You know who Haman was? He was an Agagite. Again, a relative of King Agag who Saul spared. By sparing the relative, all Israel was threatened with extinction 500 years later. Well, Saul didn't know that. He only knew what he could see. He only had a a short vision. He didn't have the big picture that God has. But listen to this. I tell you that story for a reason. When the Lord sent Samuel to confront Saul for his disobedience, here was Saul's defense. But we had a great worship service. That was his answer. Oh, I, I know I didn't kill King Agag, and I, and I know we saved it, but we had a great worship service. <laughs> Doesn't that justify everything? We played all the popular hit worship songs on the radio. You know, it, it was good stuff. People were weeping. First Samuel fifteen twenty one. He says, the people took some of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Yeah, we saved some stuff, but we sacrificed to God. Doesn't that pay it back? What is it about us that, that makes us think that we can divert God's attention from our disobedience by a really happening worship service? I've had a totally disobedient week, but I come into church and sing it out and I'm good. I'm good. It's great. And that's what Saul was doing. 1 Samuel 15.22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Translation, better to obey God than to show up on Sunday and worship in, in some amount of pretense. To obey. You want to worship God? Obey Him. You want God to know how much you love Him? Obey Him. You want to signal to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that you are just... He's everything to you? Then you obey. And and the word obey in 1 Samuel 15 is Shema. To Shema is better than to sacrifice. Shema. Hear, O Israel. You might as well write it. Obey, O Israel. The Lord, your God, the Lord is one. And he says, it's, he says, draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Saul's sacrifice was a sacrifice of fools. He would have been far better off if he had shamad, if he had listened, if he had obeyed. And if you say, I hear you, Lord, but you don't obey, 
you're deaf to the will of God. When Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Seven times in Revelation 2 and 3, He was saying, let the church obey. It's a call to obedience. To hear and not to obey is not to hear. So listen up. Worship without obedience is empty, it's meaningless, it's vanity. You might as well not do it all. And, and, and let, me, let me just encourage you. If you go to church thinking that by going to church you'll impress God just enough to get in, don't go to church. You're wasting your time. It will make no difference. If you want to get in, obey Him. Give Him your life. you got to walk with Jesus. And not just for an hour and a half on Sunday morning. Well, I don't intend to disobey. I don't, I don't mean to disobey. Neither does the fool. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. They don't realize it. They don't get it. Kohalath effectively crushes the excuse of ignorance. Oh, I didn't know any better. Not good enough. But I didn't mean to. I, I, what? If you didn't mean to, you weren't really listening. You weren't paying attention. He goes on in verse 2, Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Watch your step. Listen up. Number three, hold your tongue. Hold your tongue. Well, Pastor Rick, why don't you hold your tongue and let us out of here? That's not what he's talking about. (laughs) He's talking about the tendency that we all have slipped into from time to time to spout highfalutin words of empty promises. To sound religious in the way that we talk. Or the way that we act. And you all have either done it or you've met someone who's that way. They talk and you're like, what planet are you from? That's not how we talk. You know? Jesus didn't do that. Jesus spoke the language of the common man. In fact, fact, Jesus spoke Aramaic, which is about the poorest of the poor language in His day. And when He told stories, He told stories about farmers and fishermen and fish. Things that were casual and and average and normal. And when we speak, rather than than, trumping up our words to sound spiritual, just be honest and real. God is looking for authenticity in our lives. Verse 3, he says, For the dream comes through much effort, and the voice of a fool through many words. What does that mean? He gives two examples here of of what he means about this this over-spiritualized, hyper-religious language that doesn't mean anything, that's really vanity. Two examples. He gives the the example of dreams, which I'll explain, and then the example of a fool who's just blathering bunches of words. That one's kind of obvious. What about the dream? He says again, the dream comes through much effort. The word effort can be translated busyness or toilsomeness or burdens. What he's talking about, he's not talking about a dream of revelation here. He's talking about, frankly, a dream of exhaustion. You had them, you know, where you're just wiped out. And I had some last night that I can't even explain to you. They were so weird. I'm serious. I went to bed last night going, wouldn't it be funny if I have weird dreams? And I did. (laughs) <laughs> and this last, the last couple of weeks we're back to school we're up early we're running in every direction getting the kids where they need to be fall has hit hard in our home 
And so around 9 o'clock at night, I'm just, you know, my eyes are rolling back in my head, and Cheryl's tired, and, and we're getting to bed earlier, and some weird dreams come when you're that tired. That's what he's talking about. Dreams of exhaustion, the bizarre, restless, troubled dreams of a person who is worn out by excessive busyness. He's comparing these nonsensical dreams of the exhausted and the mindless chatter of fools to rambling religious platitudes. Do you get that? Your religious talk, Kohalif says, is like funny dreams that make no sense. They're meaningless. What do you think God thinks of overly religious talk? I, mean, I really wonder sometimes if God hears people just spouting that stuff and... and says to the angels, do you get what he's saying? I don't even know what he's talking about. <laughs> Sounds holy. But I see his heart. What his heart is saying is different than what his mouth is saying. And so Jesus said in Matthew 6-7, when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. They suppose they will be heard for their many words. Matthew 7-21, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Ooh, we're back to obedience. You want to enter? Just obey. But I I fail at obeying. That's where grace comes in. You are covered by the grace of God and now you walk in obedience to the Lord. Keep a finger here. Turn over to Luke chapter 18. This is probably a, a familiar story to most of you. But it's a parable Jesus tells, and we need to hear it again. Luke 18, verse 9. Listen to the designation Jesus gives at the beginning of it. Luke 18, verse 9. He describes exactly why he's telling this parable. Luke describes it, actually. He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Oh, good, because that's who Kohaleth is talking to in Ecclesiastes 5. People who trust in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Listen, the Pharisee's prayer is not a prayer to God, it's a prayer to himself. It's not a prayer about the Lord, it's a prayer about himself. This man is tripping on the steps of the temple. He is not guarding his steps. But the tax collector, verse 13, standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his home justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Let me ask you, who wants a relationship with anybody like the relationship this Pharisee had with the Lord? Who wants to be in a marriage like that? Oh, Cheryl, (laughs) thou art blessed to have such a man as I. One who has brought unto you many of clean dishes, who straighteneth our abode without thy requesting, who careth 
for our little ones that fill us the quiver. Who makes thee look better simply by my presence. And that's what the Pharisee's doing. He is, he is saying, God, look at how wonderful I am. Aren't you glad I'm here? Aren't you pleased with me? I spy something beautiful me. And he's so proud of himself and he's so haughty and pious and pompous and prayers to impress God and vows to sound religious trivializes our faith and trifles with the living God. And we've got to watch our step and think through how we're approaching the Lord. To approach Him as real and authentic. To approach Him honoring who He is. Recognizing it is by His grace and His grace alone that we even find ourselves on the steps of His house. Much less inside. It is not about who we are or how we come across. It is about who He is and what He has done. I guess what I'm saying in all this is when we make it about ourselves, that's religion. Religion is always making it about yourself. It's about what you can do. It's about how you look. It's about keeping the precepts and the rules and the laws in such a way that you increase your value as a religious person. You know what Jesus said? It's interesting. He had a conversation there at Caesarea Philippi with his apostles. And he said at the beginning of the conversation, who do people say that I am? And they gave religious answers. Some say you're one of the prophets. Or Elijah. And some say John the Baptist, risen from the dead. And all these different things they point out, and these would be religious answers. Who is this guy? He's a great rabbi. <laughs> and Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Why does he repeat the question? Because that is the question. That's the question for everyone who would come to the Lord and be called a Christian, it's who do you say Jesus is? Who's Jesus? It's not who are you. It's not who am I. Who is Jesus? And Peter answered, you're the Christ, Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter. Keep your worship simple and real. The most simple form of worship is this. Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. It is that simple. Jesus, you're my Savior. Praise you. It's that easy. Watch your step. Listen up. Hold your tongue. Number four, follow through. Follow through. As a companion uh, thought here to listening obedience, Kohalath turns to vows. Verse four, he says, When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And Kohalath is just repeating the law. Deuteronomy chapter 23, 21, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be a sin in you. So if you don't vow at all, you're cool. But if you make a vow, don't break a vow. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. Hey, if you vow voluntarily, then follow through voluntarily. And Jesus took it a step further. He said in Matthew 5.33, You've heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but fulfill your vows to the Lord. I say to you, make no oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, 
or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Your kids can, but you can't. <laughs> but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Jesus said, don't even mess with vows and you're not going to get in trouble. Don't spout off something, I'm going to do this for you, Lord. Be careful. Verse 6, do not let your speech cause you to sin. And do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. The messenger of God, who's that? The pastor or the priest? Don't say to the priest, well, I know I vowed that, but I don't know what happened. My mistake. My bad. Sorry. Don't do that. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Why is this such a big deal to God? I mean, we've all reneged on a promise or two, haven't we? Come on. I mean, be honest. Have you ever promised something to someone and not followed through? Have you ever promised the Lord something in your life? Foxhole prayers, you know? And then later, oh, you didn't really mean that. Here's the thing. This is why it matters so much to God. You can't keep all your promises, but He does. He does. Religion is the graveyard of unkept promises. But follow-through matters to God because He is a God of follow-through. Let me explain this. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says, Faithful is He who calls you, and He also will bring it to pass. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. What does that mean? He's faithful because that's who He is. He can't not be faithful because He is a God of follow-through. He is a God who is naturally faithful. A keeper of promises. He never speaks that He doesn't do. It's who He is. It's His nature. And isn't that good news? When He says, if you will believe in My Son Jesus, you will be saved, guess what? He will follow through on that promise. Even when you're faithless along the way. When He says, the blood of My Son Jesus cleanses from all transgression, He follows through on that promise. When He says, My people Israel will be back in the land, He's followed through on that. When He says, not only will they be in the land, but I'm going to put a spirit back in them. I'm going to put My spirit into them. They are going to come to faith in Me. It's going to happen. Because God is the God of follow-through. And we can know that His Word is absolutely sure. And because He is a God of faithfulness, He wants to develop faithfulness in you and in me. Which is why this whole vow thing is such a big deal. This is why follow-through matters to God. He knows we're, we're faithless. He knows we find it difficult. And yet He still says, but I want you to be like me. I want your life to... to Be modeled, patterned after mine. Follow through because I do. And now we come to the final statement of Kohalath to counter religiosity as we approach the living God. Verse 7. For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. Now this may sound like a repeat of an earlier verse in many dreams and many words, but it's not a repeat. The dreams in verse 3 as we've already talked about, are dreams of exhaustion. These are dreams of experience. What do you mean? These dreams, these are the dreams and the language used to support or bolster a person's spirituality. The Lord said to me to do this. God gave me a vision to do this. I have a word from the Lord for you. Which, by the way, when someone says that to me, and they say it a lot, 
Rick, I have a word from the Lord for you. I always say, thank you. I will pray about that and see if He confirms it. Is it truly a word from the Lord or not? We have Christian talk where we kind of bolster what we say or what we do or or, or where we're headed by adding in the Lord. By saying, well, God told me to do this. Well, if God told you to do that, what can I do You know, different? I have sat in staff meetings in churches where God told one person one thing and another person another thing. And I'm like, well, He couldn't have said the same, He couldn't have said contradictory things to you and you. It's the same God, He would have said the same thing. So why is it different? Because in many dreams and many words, there is emptiness. Do you measure the truth by your experiences or do you measure your experiences against the truth? And there's a big difference there. There is a tendency in the church, among religious people, even outside of Christianity and other faiths, other religions, there's a tendency to make experience the height of all things. It's why we have Mormonism, the experience of one man that overrided the truth of the Word of God, gave an entire religion. And we do it in the church today. And it concerns me. I've shared from time to time. This idea of elevating experience. Listen, all experience must be tested by the Word of God. All experience. I'm not invalidating any spiritual experience anyone here has had. If you've heard a word from the Lord, this church is here because we did. So I don't want to invalidate that. I don't want to invalidate the fact that the Holy Spirit is at work among us, that spiritual gifts are alive and at work today, that God speaks to His people, that He gives indication and direction. I don't disagree with that at all. What I'm saying is every time we believe we've heard from the Lord, we test it against the Word of God. Is it in concert with His Word? Then it probably is His His voice. If it's in contrast with His Word or contradictory to His Word, it's not His voice, it's your head. And in many dreams and many words, there is emptiness. The preacher is saying feelings are no substitute for, number five, fearing God. Better to fear God than to have feelings about God. Fearing God. Paul put it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Do not quench the Spirit... And do not despise the prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. We would say, fear God. Fear God. Because emotion and experience are not the stuff of a lasting relationship. Spiritual buzz until you flame out and burn up. And God is not looking for more nadabs and abihus. The Lord doesn't want that for you. And I don't believe the Lord is looking for churches offering the latest and greatest religious ceremonies. And I don't believe the Lord is looking for people who are lit up and moved by the latest hit worship songs or Christians caught up in emotional experiences. You know, how would it be if we walked in here a Sunday morning and the entire stage was cleared of any instruments at all? But there sat a ukulele. And we said, Danny, would you give us a little background? And all Danny knew was a few ancient Hawaiian hymns. (laughs) How would it be if we walked in here and just prayed, read the Word together and fellowshiped, 
sang a few worship songs a cappella. Ooh, really? I know some churches do that. It's kind of weird. I'm not saying we're going to. I'm just saying the emphasis can get all wrong so quickly. How would it be if you walked in here some Sunday morning and the twinkle lights were gone? (laughs) Or the stained glass in a church was missing. Or suddenly the big gilded cross was moved off the stage. We put so much emphasis on, on the tangible and physical and experiential in our church services. And God's saying... Don't let me get lost in all of your stuff. That's vanity. That's emptiness. God is looking, truly looking, for people who just want to be with Him. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, I'm there. Ladies, prayer with Jackie on a Saturday morning should be every bit as powerful and amazing experience as anything that ever happens in this barn. Because two or three are there. And the Lord is there. And that's who God's looking for. People who you just want to be with Him. David said as the deer, pants for the water brooks. So my soul pants for you, Psalm 42. Oh God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And my friends, God is calling us to Himself. Don't misunderstand. When we talk about approaching God and guarding our steps and holding our tongue, and paying our vows and all these things, fearing God, it's not so that we don't approach Him. He is calling us to the approach. He is drawing us to Himself. He's saying, come to me in a true, considered, thoughtful, affectionate affiliation. I want to be with my people. But if you're going to be with me, you've got to understand who I am. I am perfect. You've got to be perfect to be in my presence. And I want you in my presence. So get washed by the blood of Jesus. And consider your steps and come home to your Father. But to get there again, we've got to approach Him on His terms and not ours. We have to come to Him His way. We need to see Him as He really is. Jesus said again, Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who am I to you? Kohala says, Rather fear God. Rather than what? rather than the casual, off-the-cuff religion. Rather than ears that never really hear, rather than blathering tongues, empty promises, or self-exalting religious experiences, fear God. I want to read you something as we finish here. And it's uh, directly out of J. Vernon McGee's commentary. And by the way, if you're looking for a decent commentary on the Bible, pick it up. J. Vernon McGee's commentary through the whole Bible. And I love McGee because he is just so simple. You know, if you ever heard him speak, you know. He's got that Texas country twang. He passed away some years ago, but it's still on the radio. His teachings continue on. And his Through the Bible commentary is just simple. He just breaks it down. So if you're looking for something, just a commentary for the common man, pick it up. J. Vernon McGee's commentary, Through the Bible commentary. But let me read to you something that he said, and it was from his commentary on Ecclesiastes 5. Did you know that religion has damned more people than anything else has. Take a look at what the pagan religions have done for people in the past and in the present. Take a look at the condition of India. These people do not have a lower mentality than other peoples of the world. It is their religion that keeps them down. Consider China. 
their pagan religions have not done that much for them. (laughs) The Muslim world is fractured and in a sad condition. South America is as rich in natural resources as North America, yet most of the people remain in a miserable condition and its religion tries to keep it that way. This is what religion does for people, but it doesn't stop there. Look at what liberal Protestantism and liberal Roman Catholicism have done to this country. And by the way, when he says liberal, he's not talking about politics. He's talking about theology. And there is a liberalism in theology that is killing the church in America. J. Vernon McGee says, When this country began to give up its belief in God and its respect for the Bible, when liberal theology came into the pulpits of our nation, then deterioration began in the land. And McGee spoke those words over 30 years ago. I read that and I thought, boy, where are we today? I was watching a special, classic VH1 special on Simon and Garfunkel's The Making of Bridge Over Troubled Water. Their famous album that that just hit the top of the charts back in 70. And in this special, it shows them that they're just kids and they're driving along and, and they're talking and Paul Simon says... You know, Beethoven's 200th birthday is coming around pretty quick here. Coming up shortly. You know, Beethoven did everything in in, in fifths at a time when music was not done that way. And he said, why can't we do it in fifths? And so he did it in fifths. And you see Paul Simon sit there just thinking about that musically, how cool that is. And Garfunkel says, you know, another birthday is about to come up. Another 200th birthday. Oh, really? Who? He says, Maricus. It's quiet for a minute. Paul Simon goes, huh, you think they'll make it? Boy, that struck me. I know what he was talking about then. And here we are, nearly 40 years, well, over 40 years later. We made 1976. And here we are, and I look at our country, and I look at our direction, and I look at what's happening, and I think... We have lost a belief in God. We do not know how to approach God as holy and righteous and true and pure. And that, that is the reason for the mess our country's in. It is not financial. It is not political. It is not any of these other things that you will see in the news, whether conservative or liberal news. It's none of these things. It is our loss of respect for God. And it is our lack of understanding of what it means to just be in a relationship with Him, to approach Him, longing to be with Him. The last thing McGee wrote, My friend, if you have a religion, I suggest you get rid of it and exchange it for Christ. We're all approaching God. Every one of us, regardless of our faith, we are all approaching God. We will all come to a day where we see Him, where we stand face to face before Him. The question is, will you have come to Him with a heart of longing? because you have feared Him and loved Him in this life? Or will you stand before Him religious? Or stripped of any belief at all? I wonder, what, Lord, do you see in us right now? Would God say, I spy someone faithful. I spy someone humble. I spy someone obedient. I spy someone beautiful. I hope it's what He sees in us. Father, I hope it's what you see in me. So up and down from week to week, it seems, Lord. 
May my brothers and sisters understand this, that uh, we all hear these things. We all hear what you say in your Word together. And we all stumble through the week. And I ask your Holy Spirit to do the miraculous and make the changes in us. And open our eyes to your greatness, Father. And teach us how to approach you with fear and awe and even trepidation, but longing and love and passion in our hearts as well. Jesus, we just pray that you would be the sum total of our vision, that our eyes are so fixed on you, our hearts so longing for you, that that you're all we think about. And in that relationship, Lord, that we would approach you, draw near to you, and live in your presence. Father, strip us clean of religion. And Father, we pray that as You tore the veil, You will tear tear apart any barrier, as Clark said earlier, any barrier between ourselves and You. And Father, I pray for every person here. If there's someone here this morning who perhaps has never given their life to You in faith, or perhaps did years and years ago, but has walked away from it. Father, make today a new day. Cleanse fresh and new today. And as I pray, if you haven't given Jesus your life and you want to be a Christian, you want to start following Him now, it's very simple. You say what Peter said. Pray in your heart to the Lord. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I take You as my Lord and Savior. Be our Lord, be our Savior, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.